HashiCorp was founded seven years ago with the goal of building infrastructure tools for automating cloud workflows, such as provisioning, secret management, and service discovery. HashiCorp's thesis was that operating cloud infrastructure was too hard, and there was a need for new tools to serve application developers. HashiCorp founders Mitchell Hashimoto and Armand Dadgar began releasing open-source tools to fulfill their vision of better automation. Terraform, Vagrant, Console, and other tools created by HashiCorp gained popularity, and HashiCorp began iterating on their business model. Today, HashiCorp makes money by offering enterprise features and support to enterprises such as Pinterest, Adobe, and Cruise Automation. Over the last seven years, enterprise software infrastructure has changed rapidly. First, enterprises moved from script-based infrastructure automation to container orchestration frameworks. Then, the container orchestration world consolidated around Kubernetes. Today, large enterprises are rapidly adopting Kubernetes with a mix of public cloud and on-prem vendors. At the same time, these enterprises are also becoming more willing to consume proprietary tools from the public cloud providers. HashiCorp has benefited from all of this change. Their different tools fit into a variety of workflows and are not closely coupled with any particular cloud provider or platform solution. Armin and Mitchell join today's show to discuss the business model and the product philosophy of HashiCorp. We also touch on service mesh, zero-trust networking, and their lessons from the container orchestration wars. It was a real pleasure to have the founders of HashiCorp on the show, and I hope you enjoy the episode as well. Armin Dodgar, you are the CTO and co-founder of HashiCorp, and you're going to be joined eventually by your co-founder, but we'll start with just you. And I want to start by discussing the strategy of HashiCorp, because there's been so much change in the world of software in the last three years. You have massively growing public cloud adoption, you have Kubernetes leading to enterprises changing their infrastructure really significantly. And as a result of all of this change, there are some infrastructure companies that have grown much, much larger. There are some companies who have gone completely out of business or they've just lost steam in their business. You were one of the companies that grew stronger during this change rather than suffer from all the change. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. I think uh, over the last three years, I'd say that has been a, an interesting period for us as that's been you know kind of the period in which we kind of tried to graduate out of being a pure open source vendor, right? Because I think if you go back you know, three years, effectively, we had no real commercial basis, right? It was, uh, you know, I joke, we were just an extremely, you know, well-funded research project. You know, and from that time, we tried to figure out, okay, you know, if HashiCorp is going to be viable in the long run, what does HashiCorp, like the business actually look like? And, you know, I don't think we knew what the right answer was right away. So it was kind of a series of experiments, I think, you know, initially it was really around, hey, can we build a business purely on the back of support and just sell support around some of the open source stuff? And I think that was useful at the very beginning, right? Sort of just bootstrapping some relationships with customers and, 
you know, the kind of the early revenue of the company was kind of built on that. But, you know, the challenge we found was there's a moral hazard, which is like really good software doesn't need a lot of support. <laughs> right. And so, you know, what we found is, you know, if you're committed to writing really good software, some of the customers come back and be like, well, why do I need to buy support? It seems to work pretty well. So I think from there, we tried a few other strategies, you know, one of them being sort of a, a hosted platform, sort of an integrated, you know, the full Hashi stack end to end. You know, we host a thing kind of like a Heroku, but built around HashiCorp tools. So we kind of gave that a try, you know, with some reasonable success, some, you know, recognizable startups uh, that, that you would know were customers. But I think the challenge we felt there was we couldn't sell to larger companies as a result of the model. And so there was sort of this price ceiling that we couldn't get above. And the challenge was, you know, how many of the customers would we really need to have at this low price ceiling uh, to make the company sustainable? And the math didn't quite work. So I think where we kind of ultimately landed, which has, has been the most successful, has been really saying, okay, well, what are the specific and unique needs of the very biggest companies, right? The kind of global 2000, Fortune 2000. And what do they need above and beyond the open source? Can we package that as part of a commercial enterprise offering, which of course has support with it and all of that, and, and use that as, as how we build the business? And I think we found that that was super successful because if you really take any of our products Right, and then say, okay, well, what does it take to use Terraform in the context of big enterprise or Vault in the context of a big enterprise? There's all these requirements that are either, you know, it's because you're a highly regulated financial, or you have a bunch of compliance obligations as an insurance company, or you know, so on and so forth, that you need a different set of features. And I think if you package that up as part of the enterprise offering, that's kind of best of all worlds. They're like, we love the open source, we love that we can sort of figure out does it solve our problem, but there's some of these checkboxes we have to hit to be sort of a viable commercial whatever insurance company. And so great, we're willing to pay for software that solves that for us. And I think that's really, I think, the sweet spot we found. And I think what's helped HashiCorp be successful. My sense is that in the midst of all that change, the principles that were laid out in the Tau of HashiCorp were pretty useful because you had something to lean on as there was so much change and so much opportunity going on. What's the most underrated principle in the Tau of HashiCorp? Most underrated, I think, by far is the last. Last, but certainly not least, is reflection. I thought it was pragmatism. <laughs> is pragmatism the last one? Pragmatism is the last one in the Tau of HashiCorp. So we actually have two documents we publish. Oh, okay. We have our Tau, which is our sort of design ethos, right? So as we design software and think about sort of how to build things, uh, the Tau of HashiCorp is what guides us. And it has things like, you know, focusing on immutability, pragmatism, you know, a, a focus on workflows over technologies. But we also publish our principles of HashiCorp, which are more about sort of how the company should feel and run, right? And those are focused on, you know, kindness and uh, reflection and pragmatism is actually one of those. <laughs> and so pragmatism is actually the only thing that is both in the Tao and the principles of HashiCorp. So uh, we try to be deeply pragmatic. But reflection, I think, for us is the most important uh, principle because I think, you know, in some sense, that process of saying, that, hey, we're going to try this thing like support and then we're going to reflect on it and say, okay, well, you know, we are, we've tried it, but hey, here are the limitations of it, right? Like it's hard uh, to get customers to renew because, you know, the, if the software is good enough, they're not using the support, right? And then we tried the platform and reflected on it and said, you know what, the price ceiling is going to make it hard to build a large sustainable business. And so I think that's been the most useful bit is the ability to try something and then ask ourselves, is this thing working? Should we double down on it or should we try something else? Right. Google gets criticized for sunsetting products and Amazon gets complimented for supporting the same products forever, never decommissioning products. 
But as software developers, shouldn't we be happy when software engineers are just allocated towards projects that are gaining traction or projects that are worthwhile? Why is there this sort of sentiment against sunsetting products that are not working? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it comes back to the question of like, how deeply is the product being used, right? And I think some of the challenge with Google, and I felt this personally was, uh, you know, I was a big fan of their uh, RSS reader tool, yeah. right? And it's one of these things where you're like, okay, it's like, I know I use it. I can name 10 people off the top of my head that I know use it. And Google is deciding to sunset it. And I think in an environment like that, people get upset, right? Because they're like, here's a product people use and love and are getting value out of, and you're taking it away from them, right? And I think it feels feels irrational to those of us who are using it to be like, why are you getting rid of this thing? Clearly, a lot of people use it. You know, at the same time, I look at a product that we built at, for a while called Auto. Uh, it was a tool that we announced at, you know, HashiConf, a lot of fanfare. It was one of our sort of big temple investments. But ultimately, about 12, 18 months after we announced it, we made the very public decision to, to sunset the product, right? And we had, you know, a blog post where we announced it. We updated its homepage to sort of say, like, you know, it's being end of life and, and this is why. And I think with that product, we had to really look at it and say, you know what, there's a problem we tried to set out to solve, right? And we set out at that time with Auto to really look and say, hey, infrastructure is so complicated. There's so many moving pieces, even in our own portfolio, right? That if you say, I want to just deploy a simple Rails app with on AWS, and I'm going to use the Hashi stack, we'd say, great, you have to learn Packer and Terraform and Vault and Console to do this sort of successfully. And that's a huge learning curve. So we said, could we build you a tool, Auto, that would sort of help you kind of automatically, you know, in quotes, try and do some of this stuff where you just describe your high level intent, say it's a Rails app on AWS, and we'll translate it to the lower level Terraform Packer vault for you, so on. And I think what we found, that was the goal, you know, a year and a half after release, so this being, you know, well over two years of development, felt like we'd missed the mark, right? That the abstraction wasn't right, um, that it was too leaky, that it, the workflow wasn't what we wanted. And so I think, you know, it was through that process of reflecting and saying, okay, is this, have we nailed the essential product experience? And now what we're doing is making, adding features and polish and things like that. Or do we really feel like we missed the mark? And I think to us, it felt like we'd missed the mark. And so I think, at that time, we had to make that decision of, you know, do you keep investing and double down on it, even though there was, you know, a few people who used it, right? Uh, certainly wasn't Google Reader level. Or do you say, you know what, you know, time is precious, right? Like, let's, let's make a whole new attempt at solving this in a different way, uh, rather than trying to iteratively fix something that we feel like just totally missed it, right? And I think in that context, we made the decision, let's kill auto, right? And we did it publicly. So I think if you do that all the time, there's sort of a, a trust issue of should we trust any of your tools? But I think if you're selective about it, you know, I think, for example, if we today we decide we're going to end of life Terraform, I think there'd be, you know, outrage, right? But I think if you looked at a, at a tool that was earlier in its life that was still sort of figuring out, you know, what it wanted to be when it grew up, I think it's okay to make that decision. Um, so I think it's hard. I think it just depends on where the, where the tool is, where the product is, and, you know if enough users are getting value out of it, you're kind of stuck with it forever. <laughs> In the earlier days, HashiCorp was, I don't know the exact timeline, but was churning out products very quickly, new products. And at a certain point, it seemed like you said, okay, we've got enough products, let's double down on some of them. I don't think it was for any lack of, of new ideas for different products. 
And I think I heard mentioned that there is now like a research group inside the company that looks out maybe 12 to 18 months and says, okay, now that we have some product market fit on at least four different products internally, we can have most of the company focus on those core products, iteratively improving them, and we can have kind of the research team think more deeply about what really big bets do we want to make. Can you tell me about the strategic change there and how you went from just saying, okay, the whole, you know, we're just going to keep releasing new stuff, and you had a, a more deliberate split between doubling down versus new products? Yeah, I think when we first started the company at that time, me and Mitchell had sort of a kind of a vision for, I think, what the problem space was, right? And I think our sort of feeling was, you know, the whole operational space, all the existing tools felt broken to us, right? When we were talking about things like, you know, Zookeeper and Nagios and Capistrano and kind of all that stuff that was there felt like we're taking stuff out of kind of the legacy data center and sort of dragging it, you know, kicking and screaming and trying to use it in the cloud. And so when we started the company, we really said, what if we had a blank slate? Right? What if we could rethink the tools we used operationally to do our provisioning and our monitoring and our deployment and, and the kind of the whole nine yards? What would that look like? And where would you draw the dividing lines differently this time? Right? Because I think in some sense that old universe of tooling grew up very organically where you know the dividing lines is like, well, what, where does the last tool leave off? Okay, well, that's where the next tool will pick it up versus being able to really think about it from a clean slate and sort of build your own little universe. And so I think that was sort of how we'd approach it was that, okay, if we had to decompose and say, what were the pieces you need? We felt you needed a tool that would let you write in test code. Well, that was Vagrant. You needed a tool that would let you package your application up, right? That was Packer. You needed some way to actually provision infrastructure and deploy your packaged app. Well, that's Terraform. We need some way to do secret management, right? Fall. You need some way to glue these things together so the apps can talk to one another and route and discover. And turns out that's console. And the final piece was, you know, as I get into more containerization and sophisticated platforms, how do I do sort of a higher level? I'm deploying an app, not booting a VM. And that was Nomad, right? To be able to think about application level lifecycle and not machine level lifecycle. So from the get go, I think we had this vision of this portfolio of product needs to exist, and none of it exists when we started. So that first few years was very much just focused on building out that whole portfolio that we sort of only existed in our mind's eye. So we knew it all had to come together. You know, once we'd at least finished that portion of it, I think there was a slowdown of, okay, let's catch our breath, but actually double down on the products that exist and not just keep adding new ones. Uh, but to your point, I think there was sort of no lack of ideas. I think, you know, even uh, you know, even today we keep getting shut down, me and Mitchell, from products saying, no, you can't launch any new products. Like, we have enough as it is. Uh, stop launching things. <laughs> so I think the research team was, it, it, to a degree, an outlet for that. And the goal for them was very much not sort of pie-in-the-sky academic research, but very much industrial, right? And so the goal is that the things they work on either ends up as features or enhancements to the product or as products themselves, right? And I think in one case, we saw that uh, sort of the, uh, it was a paper that we actually ended up publishing about console called Lifeguard, where we really looked at, you know, the kind of gossip properties because we use sort of a gossip algorithm under the hood. It starts to get a little, you know, misshapen as the cluster gets too big, right? You start seeing erratic behavior as you get into 5, 10, 20,000 nodes. And so we were having customers at that scale who were kind of reporting these weird issues. And so the whole core of that focus was how do you make these gossip algorithms much more sort of foolproof, right, at these really high operating scales? That was the basis of that paper, and that enhancement has landed in console. So now we have you know, users with 35, 40,000 nodes in a data center, and it's running smoothly. So that was a really good example of it working well. 
Uh, and again, right now we're working on this project that we just talked about uh, at HashiConf called Vault Advisor, which is really like, how do we analyze the way a system is configured, in this case Vault, but uh, it could be generalized to other things, and look at it from a security perspective and say, hey, if you tweak your configurations you know, in this way, you can reduce your surface area attack of a compromise or you know, a, a bad user by 80% or 90%. So it's looking at this sort of like, how do we give you sort of expert guidance on how to reconfigure a very complex system? And ultimately our goal is that that becomes sort of a feature of all of our tools, right? Is that they're more intelligent about, hey, if you reconfigure a console this way, you can improve your security posture. Yeah. So Mitchell just joined. And just so you know, the setup is like you kind of talk into, look at this is the main one, and then that's kind of the backup. So given what you just said, I want to talk about the service mesh category as an example of HashiCorp product development. So console, which is a product you guys have been working on for a long time, was around and was doing a lot of the things that are now categorized as service mesh today. What's your vision for how service mesh gets deployed at a large enterprise? Like, will there be multiple instances of a service mesh? Will it be one big unified service mesh? I think at this point, it's been validated that people actually want this. Now it's a question of how it makes its way across a given enterprise. You know, I think the view, in some sense, I think it goes back to, and we see this all the time with even tools like Vault and Console today, is like, how do those get deployed in an enterprise? And I think it comes back to what is their corporate structure. And what I mean by that is, you see some companies that they're very much, there's this strong centralization, strong standardization, and there's a platform team that's very, I guess controlling about what the environment looks like, right? And so they can impose centrally and say there's going to be a single service fabric, right? We're going to deploy console. That's the standard. The whole enterprise has to use console, and there's one giant logical deployment of it. But that's not a lot of companies, right? A lot of the mega scale enterprises we work with, and some of it is just because they're so large, but a lot of it is because it's through acquisition, right? You're a bank that you bought a mortgage company, and then you bought an insurance company, you bought a wealth management company. And so in some sense, you're actually eight different companies that have been merged into one, and they have eight different IT departments with eight different technology stacks, and in some cases on eight different data centers, right? And so in those environments, it's very difficult to get them to say, we're going to deploy one mega console, right? And so instead, what you tend to see is sort of a federation. Each one of those business units might run their own cluster, their own environment, and then they're going to federate them all together, right? And so I think, you know, it really ties back to what does the corporate structure look like? If it's highly centralized and standardized, it might be a single super deployment. If it's a highly federated business through acquisition or just that's how they're structured, it's likely to be many independent federated deployments. Yeah, I think something that's interesting that's happening right now is uh, all the, I mean, not all, but AWS, for example, just announced AppMesh, which is a totally, you know, proprietary, their own version of things, like even at the protocol layer, like totally different from Istio and console and things like that. So it'll be interesting to see sort of will will something like console that works across clusters, across like, you know, on-prem to cloud sort of win in that space? Or will, you know, will you want to use AppMesh within AWS and then want to use console for on-prem and we're really enabling both right now. So, you know, obviously what well, console will work across clouds with itself. I mean, that's that's the easy problem. The But also at reInvent, we, the AWS talked about how we partnered with them to work on AppMesh to enable it to work outside of AWS because AWS's point of view is unless you're on AWS, of course AppMesh won't work. So can they find a partner? And, and we're, we've always been multi-cloud. That's been our MO. So uh, we were a very natural partner to work with to enable that. And that's what we're doing right now. 
in some ways the app mesh is reminiscent of what Amazon did during the container orchestration wars with ECS. Is the service mesh area, do you think it's going to play out similarly to the container orchestration wars, where it's like a winner-take-all thing, or do you think it's more of a multi-winner environment? I think it's harder. It's very different to me than Kubernetes and, and container platforms because you could kind of sneak Kubernetes in app, application by application, but the benefit of service mesh is really the sort of networking security across applications and, you know, across services. And so it requires a certain level of coordination that I don't think platforms require. Um, so, you know, if you, I, I, as Armand said, like, depending on your company, centralization versus not is different. But I think networks in particular are something that have held on to more centralization than other things. You saw a lot more VMware versus OpenStack versus bare metal versus cloud heterogeneity, but really... You know, the networking tier in the back was always consistent. Um, there's, it's just less heterogeneous. Uh, although, again, if you acquire companies, there's some differences there. Um, so I think it is different in that there's not a lot of value in sort of, you know, sneaking it in for your one application. Because, yeah, you'll get your microservice deployment. Maybe you get better blue-green or security or whatever you're looking for. But it doesn't help the security problem, which I think is actually the problem number one that you're trying to look at. What is the connection between a service mesh and zero-trust networking? They've got a little conflated, right? You know, I think when we talk about zero-trust networking, it's almost a philosophy more than a technology, right? And I think when we... At the core of zero trust is really saying, like, by virtue of being on the same network of me, nothing is granted, right? There's no implicit authorization that your, you know, a service is allowed to talk to a database because it's on the same network, right? So I think that's what we're really saying is, like, being on the network provides zero trust, right? I think that's the core of the philosophy. So technologically, how you implement that, I think there's sort of several different approaches, right? One approach is kind of software-defined networking, you know, where you do kind of like overlay networks and, and sort of virtualize the network to an extent. A totally different approach, which is, I think, more in the camp of, you know, console and service meshes, is sort of a TLS-based approach where we say, okay, instead of, you know, trusting our network at all, what we're going to do is distribute certificates, right? So every service gets a certificate that encodes, you know, this service is a web server, this service is a database, this service is a cache. And these are kind of like standard TLS certs that we would use, you know, going to a secure HTTPS site or something, right? But we're going to distribute them to apps internal to our data center instead of just internet facing. And then any communication service to service, our web server to our cache, you know, our web server to our database, et cetera, is going to lean on that certificate. So the web server has to present it to the database and prove it is in fact a web server. Database is going to present it back to you know the web service to prove it's a database. And so what they're going to do is establish a mutual TLS connection, even though they're inside of a private network, right? And so historically, it would have been like, that's overkill. It's a private network. Like why like, we're trusting that by virtue of the network being private, we don't need to encrypt data in our own data center, right? We don't need to authorize service to service because we're behind these trusted four walls. But I think if we go to that point where we say there's zero trust, the four walls don't mean anything, right? Then you have to do that. You're encrypting data within your data center. You're authorizing within your data center. And so I think 
That sounds great, but then you say, how do I operationalize that, right? Because now I have, call it two or three major problems, right? One major problem is I need to get certificates everywhere, right? The web server needs it, the cache needs it, the database needs it, these certs expire, so you have to refresh and rotate them all the time. So now I have this like massive pain of certificate management and distribution. And the second problem is these apps already exist, right? So you know, now I have a problem of, okay, my web server, my database, great, they don't use TLS, they're not aware of TLS. So just because I've provided them a certificate, I don't want to retool a thousand applications to make them actually use it. So I think that's where, you know, console and service meshes have sort of said, okay, we can step in and solve both of these problems, right? If we solve the certificate distribution problem, great, that's one big problem we'll take off your hand. We'll just generate the certs, distribute it, manage the rotation for you. But two, because we're deploying proxies at the edge, right? We're deploying something like Envoy, right? The proxy can intercept the traffic that is not using TLS from, let's say, the web server or the database and transparently impose it. So instead of now having to retool a thousand applications, it's like, no, 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 just deploy you know, the service mesh. That thing sits alongside your app that's unmodified and it's transparently imposing the sort of TLS security behind the scene. So I think that's where we get a bit of that overlap between the discussion of zero trust and the service mesh. The service mesh is very much a technology where the zero trust is an approach. But if you look at, for example, AWS's app mesh product, they don't use any certificates. There's no security component to it at all. So it's a service mesh, but without the the sort of zero trust kind of capabilities that you might talk about it. So I think it's important to kind of make that distinction between some of the, you know, with App Mesh, they focus on sort of the observability, routing, sort of level seven traffic management pieces without focusing on any of the security pieces. So I think they are different. In the case of console, we sort of look at, uh, at both of them and say, hey, two birds, one stone, but it's not necessarily. Yeah, I think that's really because when we talked to our customers, the security aspect was the problem that they were facing. And so... We, both philosophically and practically, that was what we wanted to, that's why the security. Security rather than like blue-green deployments and right. service discovery or something. And telemetry and stuff. I mean, those are, they want that. That has to be part of the roadmap. That has to be on the roadmap. But the day, you know, the challenge that they're facing on their day zero is that, is the secure connect- connectivity. Because they're moving from an environment where the way they would solve this on-prem are basically like, you know, top of rack switches and firewalls on, on the racks or even closer. They just, you know, F5 hardware or Cisco hardware or something. They would solve it physically that way through various layers of, uh, of firewalling, um, hardware firewalling. When they move to the cloud, that doesn't really exist. The equivalent there is a crazy number of security groups or routing tables or something. And so that's how it would manifest is these companies, you would look and they would take their architecture diagrams from on-prem and just reproduce them using cloud concepts. And it ended up being horribly expensive, not necessarily financially, just like there's a lot of complexity to, to automate the creation of accounts and routing tables. And if you wanted to deploy software, you had to make sure it was in the right you know location and had the right firewall rules to access things. So it was very slow to deploy. It's also just very abrasive against the trends of things like container management platforms and schedulers. It's like if the whole idea of a scheduler is you want to consolidate your compute to most efficiently sort of utilize those resources. But if you need to segment like physically the network, you you, ne- you necessarily have you know so much compute that's being underutilized and it only exists so that for the network security. And so that was the 
both financially expensive, complexity expensive problem that they were sort of facing that was slowing down the deploys. And so that was what we sort of tackled first, which is this gives you a way to deploy all your applications literally right next to each other and maintain that same level of security. What other lessons did you guys take away from the container orchestration wars? Well, I mean, I think one thing we learned was that there's really two types of people looking at container orchestration tooling. I think we've done very well with one, and I think we've done uh, subpar with the other type of person. One type of person is really looking for getting as close to a platform experience as possible, getting as close to a you know, I write code and it handles the routing and the load balancing and the scaling and all sorts of concerns for me. And then there's a second type of person which is really looking for a way to best utilize compute. And, you know, these are CI systems, heavy batch systems, you know, a lot of financial markets for crunching numbers, those sorts of people that are just looking, they don't need a load balancer, they don't want that sort of things. They just want they want to give you a Docker container or a VM or a just binary, and they just want it to run, and they want it to run efficiently and with the right permissions and things like that. I think you know our solution with Nomad has done very well on the the batch processing data side, the scheduler side. I mean, it's an excellent scheduler. People um, independently come to that conclusion, and that's it's being widely deployed that way. But it's also our philosophy, our product philosophy has always been pretty focused. And so Nomad is very much a scheduler. It doesn't include a load balancer. It doesn't include um, a lot of these bells and whistles that other container platforms did. And so I think that that hurt us really early on, but it hurt us, but also we, we philosophically followed what we believed, you know, we we're solving a problem that we solved the problem we we're trying to solve, which was having a, a really good scheduler that does high performance scheduling and, and stuff like that. And we do integrate closely with console and vault and we're working on integrating with more things now. Uh, but yeah, that's one thing I learned. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a big one for sure, I think is just maybe uh, a misunderstanding, I think, for us of like what the market was looking for, to Mitchell's point, of a platform versus a scheduler. And I think, you know, in retrospect, well, like, would have... Would it have been? Would it have made more sense to have a Hashi stack, for example, uh, that had a more tight integration of the different components that had more of that platform feel? Uh, probably, but sort of hard to say in retrospect. I think the other thing that we sort of didn't anticipate is it's in the early days. It's really hard to separate sort of hype from reality. And I think one of the things that we probably did badly that I think we, we've sort of acknowledged was I don't think we took that Kubernetes adoption seriously enough, right? I think in our mind, we're like, oh, you know, is this a technology that's actually going to get escape velocity uh, and people are going to use it? Or, you know, is this just hype and, you know, it's not worth a product investment to integrate with it more deeply? And I think by the time we finally realized like, oh, no, the adoption is real, right? We can sort of separate some of the hype from the reality you know, how do we play nice from an ecosystem perspective and integrate Terraform with it, integrate Vault, integrate console, et cetera. I think we were probably six to nine months, honestly, behind where we should have been. And I think that was just sort of a product management decision of, you know, you only have so many hours in the day to pick what technology you integrate with. And you have to choose like, is technology A, B, C, or D the one you you pick to integrate with? Because you don't know which of these is going to be the next big Kubernetes and which of these is... You know, uh, you know, in some sense, we spent a lot of time integrating with Rocket, you know, from CoreOS. And, you know, that was not necessarily time well spent now. <laughs> uh, and so it's, it's just really hard to tell, especially in an environment that's just evolving so rapidly. And I think that was a really important sort of a lesson is I think you have to like, you can't just make up your mind about a thing and then not revisit that uh, decision, you know, on a monthly, quarterly basis, if only because these markets are evolving so rapidly that it's like, yeah, maybe we were right when we first decided uh, it was more hype than, than adoption. But 
by the time we reevaluated, we were sort of pretty far, pretty late. Uh, and I think that was a good lesson was like, you know, check your assumptions frequently and often. <laughs> I think that's a really good product management story too, because, you know, we, our customers for a long time biased towards people that were not using Kubernetes. And so like from a product management perspective, you know, when we were selling vaults or Terraform or what have you, it was, you know, we didn't see a lot of Kubernetes in our customers. And so we're like, it's, we see a lot of people talking about it. We're not seeing it. So must, you know, we, we don't really need to integrate with it. It's not a big deal. <laughs> but, you know, and in the back of our mind, I mean, I think something was telling us like, maybe it's just the type of people we're talking to. And when we finally made the decision, we sort of just made it to, to integrate with Kubernetes much more closely. I don't think there was any real impetus besides that it just felt like the right thing to do, even though we we're late. There was no customer asking for it necessarily um, or things like that. We just did it. Um, and as soon as we did it, suddenly all our customers wanted it, right? It's it's one of those things where like the groups that are using Kubernetes came out of the woodwork and was like, oh, we haven't been looking at console because we were afraid of you know the lack of Kubernetes integration. Now that's there, we want to talk. And so now, I mean, I have weekly customer calls that are just wanting to talk about Kubernetes. And yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's like you can't take your customer feedback too directly because there's it's the absence of the customer that's telling you something not necessarily yeah same thing with the, the community i mean there was people asking in the community for kube stuff but the exact same thing happened in the community the kube users naturally selected themselves away from our software in certain cases so we weren't hearing it in issues that loudly either that's pretty amazing so the one of the first questions i asked him was about like kind of the because the, the kubernetes thing i felt was this pivotal moment where some companies were not able to survive or or have really not done well since some decisions that they made during the container orchestration wars and it was this pivotal moment where if you made the right strategic decisions then you're in where you guys are now which is really good position if you made the wrong strategic decisions you're in a really tough spot so talking about strategy hashicorp brought on an outside ceo this strategy worked extremely well for google are you modeling the company leadership model after Google at all? And I'm not trying to flatter you at all. I'm just trying to say, like, you know, it's it's it is kind of reminiscent of that because you guys are pretty on the same page in terms of like how much input and how much respect you have for each other's opinions. So I was laughing, or I think we we're both laughing because the way that came about was we floated the idea. This and this was now three and a half years ago or something. It's quite a long time ago. Dave's been here for two and a half years, something. Uh, we floated the idea of it, but really we thought it was a long shot. So we're like, we're going to look for a more focused, we're looking for a VP of marketing, VP of sales, some executive that wasn't quite a CEO because we didn't think we could find somebody. But Armand actually used the analogy that was like, if we could find, you know, our version of Eric Schmidt, yeah. <laughs> would we hire that person? And I think we both said, yeah. So it's funny because uh, that was the analogy we actually used was, you know, I think that our skills and our expertise are best served in the company not doing most of what a CEO's role is. At least right now. Yeah, yeah. And so if we could find someone that we felt was culturally aligned, aligned with the vision, then, you know, we would entertain the idea and, you know, to, to for mutually for Dave to join, for us to want him to join, it took over a year of us talking to him. It was not it was not like love at first sight. We found the person and we're like, oh yeah, this is going to be the person. And we felt really good about Dave when we first met him, but it took a lot of meetings, a lot of dinners, a lot of whiteboarding to get to the point where both of us were comfortable doing it. And it has been great. Was there some particular weakness you guys were wanting to hedge against when you were looking for an executive CEO? Because if you look at like the Google history, 
it seemed like they knew that they were a little too like no managers and let's do everything and they knew that about themselves so they kind of looked for some somebody who could correct those sort of lack of adult supervision things yeah i think uh you know it goes back to what we were talking about i think earlier which was you know over the last three years sort of that evolution of the commercial strategy because uh, i think the forcing function really for us became you know in the early days like i said you know we were uh, you know a, a well-funded research project uh, and really didn't know what the commercial was and i think by the time we'd sort of made that decision to say you know what we actually want to focus uh, on the enterprise as as being the sort of target customer base for us then all of a sudden, you know, me and Mitchell had to sort of look back at and say, like, okay, well, are we the right people to build an enterprise sales team, an enterprise marketing function, like a an enterprise go-to-market sort of story? And I think it was sort of painfully obvious the answer was no, right? So I think that was really where the the weakness we were trying to balance out it was, you know, I think you know me and Mitchell continue to be very, very involved on the product and engineering side in terms of, you know, evolution of product strategy, architecture of the products, things like that. But we needed someone to round us out on sort of the go-to-market, right? How do we position the company? How do we sort of build the right sort of executive team that has the enterprise expertise? Uh, And I think that's where we felt like what we needed was not necessarily, you know, a boss, but a partner. And I think that's really when we found Dave, what we were looking for was, hey, we want someone who will be sort of our partner on thinking about sort of the enterprise go-to-market side while we focus on sort of the product and engineering side. And I think that's continued to be a pretty healthy sort of partnership between the three of us. How have you developed that sales and marketing perspective? Because uh, my sense is, I've never built out the sales and marketing team, but my sense is that this time is really different than any previous time in software because you've got these giant cloud providers and you have to have this kind of like frenemy relationship with them. And then on the marketing side of things, things are also changing because the developer is having more buying power than ever. So you're not necessarily marketing to a CIO in a suit and tie, you're marketing to a developer. So how 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 are how have things changed and how are things the same? I'll, I'm going to break that down a little bit because I think there, there's a few different things. So yeah, like from a, from a Let's start with sales from a sales perspective. I think a lot of it, given our strategy choice, is the same, and a lot of it is different. So the, the same is that it's enterprise sales. It's still like you got you got to talk to the person. You have to be present. It's a long sales cycle. Um, it's the same type of like you know budgeting and things like that. So that's a lot of the same. I mean, I think the, a lot of the different is the yeah the understanding that the practitioner is the person making the decision to adopt a technology, not necessarily the person with the budget, and so. The way you know we've done that is, uh, I think, still today, but for a very long time at least, you know, we didn't approach any companies to even try to sell to them unless we knew 100% that they were using our open source. There was, we didn't want to explain what the tool did from a practitioner standpoint to them. We wanted them to have it. We, we need to align with an internal champion that already uses the tool and likes it and understands why they believe their company needs it. Uh, and we work together, so internally and and us externally, to get a deal done to, to sell into that company. And I think that's different. I don't think I, I would hazard a guess that Oracle doesn't do that, right? <laughs> and so I think that was very different. On the marketing side, I mean, for a very long time, our only marketing expense was our annual user conference. We didn't sponsor any conferences. All the conferences we attended we were speaking at, so they were free. We still, to the, to date, have never spent anything on ads, uh, digital ads. We we don't do any of that kind of marketing, and so that's very different. Um, it's be, it's open source practitioner based. So I think our marketing teams are marketing teams are very good at understanding that the the journey is really 
you know, why, like, why would you use it? You know, actually using it, reading the docs, engaging, contributing, like there's a practitioner path that doesn't involve dollar signs at all that gets them all the way to the point where they're successfully using it and they're very likely contributing in some form back to it and without paying anything. And you have to nurture that pretty much. Um, So I think that's the difference there. Some people try to size the market for enterprise software and to me, a modern sizing seems almost impossible. Like the total addressable market can't really be calculated because it's impossible to know how much software a large bank is going to need in five years or how many oil refineries are going to need Terraform. Do you have any useful metrics that allow you to think about how big this market is? I'll let Armand think about the metrics. I mean, I think qualitatively, something that's really interesting we mentioned at HashiComp is that everything is growing. And so when we go into a customer, they're bringing us in usually because they're in the midst of a cloud transition or something like that. But despite that, if we now have customers that have been uh, customers long enough that we could look back and spend you know, three years and we look back and it's like, yeah, their cloud usage has gone, usage has gone way up. But their physical data centers are growing too. They're not. They're they're not really shutting them down. Their their footprint's growing growing there too. The number of clouds is growing, um, the number of applications simultaneously is growing. I'm sure that's all correlated. But everything's sort of pushing for more. Um, and at the same time, more and more companies that traditionally weren't software companies are still in their own transformation of becoming software companies um, that started you know decades ago. And so this all points to the fact that. We think you know the total addressable market is much larger than what was available for, let's say, virtualization, that phase. But it's also much larger than what it seems like it's going to be right now. Um, and for us in particular, too, because we have our distinct product lines, um, we view it as even larger because we could just sell Terraform to every company. And that's that's a really, really big, successful company. But we have a totally different group that sells Vault, or a totally different group that buys Vault, and a totally different group that buys Console. And so we view the total addressable market really as you know, all the cloud adoption, maybe like times four. And that I think is interesting. Does it make you want to go after the market more aggressively? Or do you prefer to take that power of the market and allow it to let you be more deliberate and just sort of go at your own pace and so that you can retain calm and make sure you don't fall on your face? I, I think it would be a nice luxury uh, <laughs> to go at our own pace, certainly. You know, I think there's a few sort of competing pressures, I think, in the market. You know, I think on one side, there's the reality that cloud is growing at 80% annually, right? If you look at just, you know, the numbers reported by Azure and AWS and Google Cloud, right? So the market's just growing at that clip. So there is this pull that means naturally just from sort of, you know, our customer base, right, and our user base to sort of satisfy their demand. And so, you know, when the tide is rising at 80% year over year, you have to be rising at that percent just to keep pace, right? Uh, Otherwise, you're not even keeping up with customer demand. So in some sense, because the market is itself growing so rapidly, you know, I think there isn't as much of that luxury to grow at your own pace, right? I think you have to be sort of at least trying to keep up with your own customers, uh, if nothing else. So I think that's been sort of this kind of forcing function for us. You know, I think when we look at sort of our growth, our hiring, it's really as organic as possible. It's just how do we keep up with just the inbound demand of our customer base, our user base, our community, right? Who you know, filing issues, you know, opening tickets, right? Like, you know, trying to buy software, you know, engaging with us in some way. And how many people do we need to to sort of just keep up? And I think that's been the biggest sort of driver for us, right? So I think, you know, last year we went from 
you know, 150 people to 400 basically today. And I think looking at sort of this year, somewhat less dramatic, but, you know, probably in that same sort of 80 to 120% growth expected this year. And part of that's just how do you keep up with the baseline? But then, you know, how do we make sure we keep up with all, all the inbound, basically? So I guess going back, it's like, I wish we had the luxury <laughs> for our own sanity's sake uh, to grow it slower. But I, I think that's not, it's not as much of an option in this market. Yeah, and I think there's some people and companies that would say like, you, know, you could, you could go slower. In addition to what Armand said, I think the problem is the type of software specifically we sell is, you know, they're choosing their sort of company-wide or business unit-wide at least solution for provisioning. You know, they're not really using Terraform and CloudFormation. They're they're choosing Terraform because it represents the ability to standardize. And so the problem is if we're not in the room, if we can't get in the room, they will choose something else and they will choose a different standard tool and we're probably out for five plus years, right? They're, they cho- They chose their technology for a long time. And so it's really scary and stressful and difficult because we would like to grow slower and things like that, but a lot of our fear is, you know, and we've had this happen a couple of times where you go to a customer, it's like, if you talked to us six months ago, maybe, but we already chose our three-year plan. This is our three-year plan, and so come back. And that that hurts because you, you don't even have a foot in the door. So, you know, a lot of our our motivation on growth is, you know, you could you can make your company more efficient. You could, you know, have individual salespeople do more deals, but time you can't change the amount of time you have. And so the more people you have, the more time you have to work with to actually, you know, spend an hour meeting, you know, with, with somebody. You can't have one person take more meetings. There's just a limitation on time. And so that's the balance we have to make is how do we grow a successful, sustainable business while at the same time being as present as we can so that there's awareness in the market. Let me ask you one more question before you go. What's the best and worst part about working on a somewhat equal level with a close friend? <laughs> I think the best part, it's kind of like a sibling in the sense that I think there's a really deep understanding of uh, what we want to do, how we're feeling, when we need each other, thing, when we don't need each other. I think that, that that's very strong. And so that's really nice. That's just unspoken in a way. I always say, I think for me, the downside is there's, I think there's a lot more emotional investment that I need to have. And so it's like, on one side, it's just a job. Yeah, it's your company, but it's just a job. And then on the other side, it's on the other side, it's like, even if you are in the pit of despair and you're like, well, I don't, I, it's just a job, I don't care. It's like, but I care about you know him or I care about the other people I work with. And I think that's that's hard about having a close friend. It's less of a business relationship. I mean, as much as I love working with Dave, I can't say I feel the same way about Dave, uh, although he's awesome, right? It's it's very different. Cool. Thanks, Thanks Mitchell. Mitchell. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Can, you, can I get your answer to that question? Uh, my answer is probably really similar to Mitchell's, right? I think I describe it as almost like it, we're, it feels like we're left and right brain, right? As it's like, it, you know, sometimes it feels like we can, you know, it, it's almost telepathy as we sort of talk about product decisions and company decisions. And I think that's, I think that only comes out of like that chemistry of having like been best friends, you know, for so long that it's like, you know, it, a body tick is just enough to sort of like you read into that. You don't need to have that conversation about it. So I think that there's that that efficiency of the communication. And I think the other strength has been, you know, a startup is not, I would say, an easy <laughs> adventure. There's a lot of sort of uh, for every up, there's many downs. And I think having someone else that you can sort of talk to and relate to and, and commiserate with. For, for whom it's not like totally abstract, right? Like even my partner, it's not the same when I go home and tell him because he's not close enough to the company and to the problems to really understand it in a way that like, you know, Mitchell totally gets. So I think that's a huge plus. Downsides, I honestly don't, 
I don't even know what I would say. Uh, well, we gotta let Mitchell leave the room. <laughs> so you can say the you downsides. Know, probably every once in a while when we sort of disagree on a thing, start trying to, like, maybe it takes longer for us to actually come to a decision than if you were sort of, instead of being two-headed, if it was a one-headed sort of leadership, uh, you'd probably get to a decision faster. You know, but at the same time, I think that has its own pluses, which is like, you don't rush into decisions and there's sort of uh, other opinions and viewpoints on it. So, you know, that's probably the biggest, you know, challenge, I think. So you've got this change that we kind of discussed earlier where the developer can now buy things from a dashboard, but then you've often got a CIO or a CFO that sort of puts a gate up and says, okay, we don't want you buying all of that. And to some extent, that's inconvenient, obviously, for the developer. But also, you know, we've seen the rise of the cloud cost management companies, which is a gigantic business. There's like five major companies doing cloud cost management, at least, and that's because you get some companies that are just like spending tons and tons because they like gave carte blanche to the developers and like, oops, you know, they're spending a lot of money. So what do you think is going to happen there? Like, is there going to be like a tightening or a loosening of the wallet? I mean, I think your sort of observation, I think, uh, you know, we're seeing the market try and say, how do we solve this with a, through a product lens, right? Because I think there is this natural tension and we see it all the time, which is, you know, you talk to a CIO who's sort of like hand wringing that they're like, you know, I gave my developers access to the console, and the first thing they do is go spin up an 8x quadruple large with six TPUs attached to it because it's cool. And, you know, we're getting billed $20 a minute, right? And then they leave it running for four months because they forget about it, right? So I think you hear that super, super common. So I think there's this tension between how do we make the developers productive and give them sort of self-service access and, you know, let them run and go with the other side, which is like, oh, how do you maintain some sanity around, you know, cost management, around security, around some of the governance capabilities that you need to be a sane business, right? You can't have developers who are spending unlimited amounts of money and opening up your whole network to the public internet, right? So, you know, I think, the, you know, the right answer is probably something in the middle, <laughs> as with most things in life. You know, I think that's been a big investment for us is how do you give CIOs that, you know, hey, install policies that control what you can do, when you can do it, who can do it, right? And then make that part of a self-service workflow for the developers. And as long as they're playing within the sandbox, right? As long as you're not launching an 8x quadruple large, right? Great, the system allows you to go through in sort of an automated way, it gives you that self-service experience. But that moment you try and step out of the sandbox, how do we say no in an automated way? Because I think that key is the automated way. Because otherwise what you end up seeing is organizations say, okay, well, great, I'm just going to create a checkpoint for you where you have to file a ticket. I'm going to manually review what you're doing. And now there's no self-service. You have to wait four weeks for someone to review a thing. So I think as long as you can impose those controls in an automated way without breaking the self-service, it's sort of a win-win. CIO gets what they want. They get their governance. Developer gets what they want, which is no one's in their way. They can self-service. But I think it's finding that balance of usability, governance, you know, automation that makes that all work. And I think that's been an area we spend a lot of time in. Okay. Armand, we'll leave it there. Thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really fun talking to you. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. Wow. 